listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I'd like to talk about dry wood from a green tree, courtesy of our Father's Word, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. But before we get there, I'd like us to revisit the reality of Jesus being the ultimate prayer warrior. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you know that Jesus modeled for us what it means to really pray, what it means to live a life that is totally devoted to the Father, as manifest through his secret life, his private life, his prayer life that overflowed into his public life. We know that the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus offering loud prayers before his Father. There are many instances in the Scriptures where we see Jesus praying and talking to his Father. Now, prayer is important because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you too are in the process of being transformed into a prayer warrior. Prayer is not something we do automatically. If it was something we did automatically, then we wouldn't have so many admonitions in the Bible to pray. You don't have to be told what to do if you automatically do it. So prayer is not automatic. It's something that we grow and develop into. And the fact of the matter is that if you're following Jesus Christ, you will grow and develop into being more and more like Jesus as a prayer warrior. Prayer has many practical ramifications. Number one, we think of prayer as being intercession, coming before God and making requests before Him, and it's good to do that. It's important to do that. We are told in the Bible to make our requests to God. Come to a loving Father. Come to your loving Father who wants to listen to your requests. He knows that you have needs. He even knows that you have wants. God is capable of giving you the desires of your heart, provided that those desires glorify Him and honor Him. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that's happening in your life, I know it's happening in my life, is that God actually changes the desires of our hearts so that we begin to pray things that are more in line with the very heart of God. So intercession is an important part of prayer, but it's not the only thing when it comes to prayer. A prayer life, a life of prayer, is one that is characterized by intimacy with God the Father. The more intimate you are with God, the closer you are with God functionally, practically. We know that we're made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet right with God, it's for no other reason than you haven't gotten right with Jesus Christ. You haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. And what's important for you to understand and for me to understand is that a life of intimacy with God transforms our lives. We become more compassionate for people. We become more passionate about the God who created people. So you have to be very careful that you don't measure your prayer life simply by the amount of time that you spend in prayer or by the list or lists of intercessory things that you have before God, you have to understand that your prayer life is really the means through which you manifest a hunger and a desire to be close to your Heavenly Father. And if you are walking closely with your Heavenly Father, 
in your prayer closet, you will walk closely with your Heavenly Father when you leave your prayer closet. A life that is changing and being more Christ-like is a life that is intimate with God. That's how you measure whether or not your prayer life is worth its salt. There are many people in many religions, many Christians who spend a lot of time praying and are involved in ritual activities that they would call prayer. Remember, the Pharisees were experts at it, and Jesus didn't choose one Pharisee to be an apostle. It's time in the body of Christ for us to examine how we're living in proportion to how we're praying. If your lifestyle is not changing and conforming more and more to the way Jesus looked, to the way Jesus acted, to the mind of Christ, it wouldn't be too much to say that your prayer life probably needs a checkup from the neck up. There's something about really communing with God that changes our relationships with people. And I don't know if you've recognized this, but there's a lot happening in our nation. There are a lot of interpersonal problems between blacks and whites and whites and blacks and whites and whites and blacks and blacks and Christians and Christians and people of all different faiths. There's a whole lot of gobbledygook going on and I want to trace it right back to what I think is the root of the problem. I think the root of the problem is prayerlessness. Now you know what kind of prayer I'm talking about. Not a ritualistic type of prayer, but the kind of prayer where we are really communing with Almighty God. It is not possible to have meetings with Almighty God and not to be transformed. Every time you see somebody in the Bible having an encounter with the living and true God, they walk away a different person. Moses went over to the burning bush, thought he was going over to see a strange sight. That's not what it was about at all. God was calling a leader to deliver a nation and write the first five books of the Old Testament. Every single time you see somebody in the Bible having an encounter with God, they walk away a different person. And this is the way you need to see your prayer life. It is an encounter with the living and true God. And if you are not walking away a different person, you do not understand the prayer life of Jesus. If we're not walking away different people from when we leave our prayer closet, we do not understand what prayer is about. Prayer is not fundamentally and foremost to get our requests fulfilled, even though God in his grace and his mercy knows how to answer prayer requests, all right? The purpose of prayer is to commune with God in such a way that God Almighty, the living and true God, gets such a hold of our lives that we actually behave like little Christs wherever we go. That word Christian was first used in Antioch, and it means little Christ. We cannot be like Jesus in nature, but we can be like Jesus in character. 
And so you have to really take an assessment. I have to really take an assessment. The whole doggone country needs to assess with all of our religiosity and all of our churches and all of our rituals and all the things that we're doing, we have to really have a a serious evaluation of whether or not our prayer lives individually, which actually end up being the prayer life of the nation collectively, if our prayer lives individually really are like the prayer life of Jesus. If our prayer lives are real and authentic, and if our prayer lives move beyond just the selfish motive of asking God to give us whatever we want, if our prayer lives don't move beyond that, you can expect more of the same in the United States of America. It will be same thing, different day. In fact, it's going to be Worse, things will continue to unravel, and I will say it again, and you will hear me say it again, and it needs to sink deep down into who you are and who I am. This nation is ripe for either the disciplinary judgment of God or a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit in genuine spiritual awakening and true revival. And we can have either one of those under the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, depending largely, I don't understand how it works because I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in human responsibility. There is a lot in the Bible about God moving and God's people moving with him. And I'm not so sure we aren't paying attention at this particular time in our nation's history when we should be paying attention and repenting and responding and rediscovering what a life of intimacy with God the Father looks like courtesy of Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you what, if we don't discover that in the body of Christ, we will not have spiritual awakening, we will not have revival, and this nation, the condition of this nation will continue to get worse. If it's going to be, it's up to me. That needs to be your mantra as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that with arrogance. I'm not saying that apart from the sovereignty of God. I'm saying that it needs to be your understanding in mind. You need to act and pray as if it depends upon you. You need to take, I need to take repentance and humility before God very seriously with a biblical seriousness. And then we need to leave the consequences and the results up to God. Now look with me at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. As we examine and we rediscover the life of Jesus in regard to prayer. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. These are the ones, except one, Judas of Iscariot, who the Lord built the church upon. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, here we get an understanding here of how Jesus went out to a mountain to pray, and all night before he made a key decision, he was praying to Almighty God. He was praying to Almighty God for the selection of the apostles. And by the way, Judas was not an accident. Jesus didn't get it wrong. He got it right. Judas played a key part 
in the betrayal of Jesus and the prophetic unfolding of how he fulfilled everything in Scripture that was prophesied about him. But here, it's not hard to connect the dots and to understand that Jesus had a dependence upon his Father, an absolute sheer dependence upon his Father. And I know that God has put it in the hearts of many of you and many people around this nation to pray and to draw near to God like never before. My encouragement to you is the Lord's encouragement to you. Draw near to God and do it. Be faithful to God. Christ-likeness and an intimate prayer life go hand in glove. Spiritual maturity and a vibrant prayer life go hand in glove. And Jesus is demonstrating very clearly for us a dependence upon his Father for a key decision. Certainly, we can have that same dependence upon God for every single decision we're facing in our lives, whether it's something that we're facing at the workplace or something we're facing in our family lives or in our personal lives or a, a relational issue, whatever the case might be. Jesus is demonstrating a dependence and intimacy and abiding with his Father. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that's where you're headed. If you're going to follow Jesus, that's where you're headed. Many of us have gotten off the beaten path. The beaten path of prayer. Many of us. The beauty of God is that he makes it easy to return. It's just called repentance it's called agreeing with God about what he already knows. And the Lord, we have the example of the prodigal son, has arms wide open and says, come on back. I'm ready to pick up where we left off. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, as we are going to transition in just a moment to Luke chapter 23 and what actually was happening when Jesus was being tried and betrayed at a very similar time of day. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, or a set-apart place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And so here we have in the scriptures a very clear teaching, a very clear understanding that Jesus would get up early in the morning and pray. He would go and set himself apart so that he could be fully attentive to the Father. And you need to have that same type of a practice in your life where you are fully attentive to the Father, not distracted by anything or anybody. You would think that Jesus is going to pour into the lives of 12 men who are going to pick up the baton that he's going to hand off to them, the apostles. And yet Jesus understood that it was still important for he himself to get apart with his father and have an intimate abiding relationship with him. I don't care how busy you are, Jesus was busier. It doesn't matter what God has called you to, whether it sounds super spiritual or whether it sounds super unspiritual in your own eyes. There's nothing that's unspiritual when it comes to living a surrendered life to God. You and I will never be busier than Jesus Christ. And Jesus demonstrated for us, he still demonstrates for us, the importance of private, set-apart, undistracted time as the bedrock, the foundation from which all 
true ministry overflows. You do not have a ministry. You do not have a ministry unless that ministry is the overflow of an abiding prayer life. Now, God might have given you a ministry. Now, then it's up to you. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God has given every Christ follower a ministry and ministries. You might not have the title of pastor or the title of elder or deacon, but you're a priest within a priesthood, a priesthood of believers, as Peter writes in his epistle. So you have to understand that all true ministry, effectiveness in ministry, is the overflow of intimacy with God. Ministry without intimacy is a travesty. Ministry without intimacy is a travesty. And the greatest need in the body of Christ today at this particular time throughout the world, I'll just speak to us as Americans because we seem to be taken out to the woodshed again and again with what's happening in the nation every time we turn around. The greatest need in your life and mine is an intimate prayer life with the Lord. That's what's going to create focus and boldness in your life where there would otherwise be cloudiness and cowardice, right? A prayer life will create focus in your life and a passion for the will of God. It's easier to say no to the things of this world when you understand God's yes. Do you understand that? The world is pulling at you and pulling at me. It's never going to give up trying to convince you that these things, these other things are more important. No, there is nothing more important in this particular time in history than to walk closely and intimately with God. That's your solution to a transformed life. If we will spend time with God, God will transform us. And Jesus demonstrated very clearly for us his prioritization of first thing in the morning while it was still dark. He set himself apart as an act of the will to spend intimate time with his father. Everything that Jesus did was exactly what his father wanted him to do. And that's what little Christs, also known as Christians, should be living. And so when we get to Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, look at this. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held the consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Did you see that? As soon as it was morning, the Sanhedrin had been meeting all night. We know from Luke chapter 6, Jesus had spent an all night in prayer on the mountain before he chose the apostles. We know that Jesus would get up early in the morning, go off to a set-apart, undistracted place, and spend time with his father. And hear what we see in Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 23 is the beginning of the separation between the Son and the Father for the very first time. Because it's at the very times when Jesus, as we've just seen briefly, was characteristically spending time with his Father, that he's with the Sanhedrin, and he's being scorned and ridiculed and tried unjustly and falsely accused. Those were the times where if I was a betting person, I would bet it and you would too. Jesus, for personal reasons, 
would have much rather been spending time with his Abba Daddy. And what we're seeing in Luke 22 and 23 is the beginning, this transition of Jesus being separated for the very first time from his father. At the times when he would have been praying, at the times when he would have been enjoying intimate communion with his father, now he's spending time with the Sanhedrin and then with Pilate and then with Herod. And it leads ultimately to what we're reading about here in Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, Jesus, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross, or the crossbar, to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And the symbolism that Jesus is presenting for them is stark and timeless, not only for the people who heard him say that, but also for us today. If they do these things that when the wood is green, when I'm in the midst of my people, then what will be on the horizon when I'm no longer here? And aren't we getting a taste of that today in the world in which we live? The tree is green in Jesus' day. And the people have rejected him. Not all of the people we see. Look at verse 27. There followed him a great multitude of the people and a woman who were mourning and lamenting for him. So there are large crowds still, large contingency of people who did not conspire against Jesus. Remember, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders of Israel together, the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 who are officially acting on behalf of the nation of Israel in their condemnation and rejection of Jesus. But there are still large contingencies of people who are following Jesus who did not want him put to death. And this is the way they were behaving when the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Appointed One, the Christ, was there in the midst of his people. The question for you and me is this, the tree was green, but will your wood be dry? The nation of Israel rejecting Jesus, the United States of America rejecting Jesus, the question is for you and me. The tree was green. Will your wood be dry? Look with me at verse 26. Luke chapter 23. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene. This is not too far from the location of Benghazi in Libya. Not very far at all. Northern Africa, 
Many have postulated that Simon was black in color because of his location, and here we see him given a position not of dishonor, but of tremendous honor. Can you imagine being given the honor of carrying the cross of Jesus? Can you imagine that? And then in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost comes, we read that there are God-fearing people from all around the area. They get saved, and there are some from Libya or Cyrene, this very location. And then in Acts chapter 11, we see that there are men from Cyrene who are preaching and teaching to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles get saved. As we look at the book of Acts, you see it happening just the way Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And when we get to Acts chapter 11, we see believers from Cyrene, that part that coastal region of Libya, not far from Benghazi, being the people whom God uses to spread the gospel that had previously been first and foremost focused on the Jewish people to the non-Jewish people, the Greeks. What a tremendous privilege. And you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate in a good way. Not all speculation is evil or bad or dastardly. I wonder if Simon of Cyrene was a sympathizer with Jesus. And so when we read in Acts chapter 2 that Cyrene is specifically mentioned, and we read in Acts chapter 11, we see a special privilege being given to the people in that area. Cyrene historically had three particular temples, one to Zeus, the god of the sky, another temple to Zeus's son, supposedly, Apollo, who was the god of music, and then a third god who was the god of the harvest, Demeter, the god of grain, the god of corn, the god of the harvest. And so there was a heavy Greek population there where idolatry abounded, but there was also a heavy Jewish contingency, about 100,000 Jews living in that area. So that area was ripe for the gospel ripe for Cyrene to be a place where the gospel was poured out, where the message of Jesus Christ came against false idols and false gods so that the people there could understand the truth about the living and true God. So we see God being very strategic again and again and again in the scriptures, and I don't think it's a coincidence here either. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Because Jesus is actually giving a prophecy about what's the future, about what's coming on the horizon. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Look with me at Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. This is the beginning of Jesus' separation from his father, something he had never experienced 
ever. Remember, the Son existed with the Father in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Neither of them ever had a beginning. Jesus, humanly speaking, had a birthday. Not December 25th, sorry to disappoint you. But the Son, in regard to the Trinity, never had a beginning. He was with God in the beginning, as the Scriptures say in John chapter 1. But what we're seeing here, through the trial and the rejection of Jesus, and now Jesus going to the cross, this is what led Jesus in, in uh, Matthew chapter 27 when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're seeing Jesus experiencing the full effects of sin, experiencing separation from the Father that culminated on the cross. But it was beginning to happen that night when he appeared before the Sanhedrin. And that morning when he would have otherwise, I'm sure, have much preferred personally to have been in prayer as he had done before. When they led him away and his separation went to a whole new level. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, another word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities, sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes, we are healed. Many people look at that last verse, with his stripes or by his stripes, you're healed, and they immediately jump to physical healing. Listen, your greatest problem in life is not your physical illness. My greatest problem in my life when I had cancer was not physical illness. My greatest problem in my life when I had epiglottitis one of 500 people in the United States of America and almost died as I was in intensive care for two days. That was not my greatest problem. No matter what physical issue you might face in your life, it is not your greatest problem and it is not the thing that Jesus is most concerned with. The context of Isaiah 53 means everything and the context is that God is likening sin to sickness. By his stripes, you are spiritually healed. All of your sin by faith in Jesus Christ because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross results in your spiritual healing, my spiritual healing. Please be careful that you don't go through life thinking that the mere here and now is the primary thing that should consume your attention and your focus and your energy. It is not. And because that tends to be our nature, humanly speaking, we can often do that in the way we interpret Scripture and read our interpretation of Scripture into Scripture instead of letting the interpretation of God change our thinking and our perspective and our paradigm. The greatest issue that you have in your life and in mine is the issue of sin. And Jesus Christ dealt with it definitively, finally, officially, when he hung on the cross. What results in our peace cost Jesus his very life.
And before it cost Jesus his very life, it cost Jesus that intimate, abiding relationship with his father that he had always known. Look with me at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we're seeing in Luke 22 and Luke 23. It was necessary for Jesus and the Father to have a schism between the two of them because that is the reality of your life and mine before we come to know Jesus Christ. We are spiritually dead, separated from Almighty God. And this is what the Bible means, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is all about. And so while Jesus is experiencing separation for the very first time from his heavenly Father, we must understand and appreciate that he did that to honor his Father to purchase you and to purchase me so that we could live lifestyles of growing, obedient intimacy that Jesus knew before the beginning of time. That Jesus gave up for a short time so that you could begin an intimate, abiding relationship with God right here and right now that would go beyond all time. This is what's happening in the life of Jesus, who had such an intimate, abiding relationship with his Father, who willingly gave it all up because he knew that you would have never experienced intimacy with God. I would have never experienced intimacy with God unless Jesus paid it all. Now, let's look here for a closer moment here at what Jesus says. Luke 23, verses 29, 30, and 31. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wounds that never born, the breasts that never nursed. He's speaking prophetically about the future. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He seems to be referencing Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. Hmm. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Look with me at Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus is prophesying about in Luke 23. Are you ready? This is what's coming upon the world because when Jesus gave a word, predictive word about the future, we must be concerned about the fulfillment of that word since he is the prophet of prophets. Look with me at Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! 
And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. That's a day's wages. This is hyperinflation. That's what this is. A situation of hyperinflation coming upon the world where it will cost you an entire day's wages for one quart of wheat. How's that for price fixing? In other words, something has happened to the world economy that's so devastating and so unprecedented that prices would go through the roof. It's coming. Three quarts of barley for a denarius, a day's wages, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In other words, they'll be affected too. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale or a storm. The sky vanished like a scroll. Remember that hymn that we sing, the sky be rolled back as a scroll. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Pay attention. Verse 16, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the fulfillment of what Jesus was speaking about to the nation of Israel that had rejected him when he said, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The nation of Israel had fallen now, Jewish people, mostly, largely, not yet embracing Jesus as the anointed one, the appointed one, the Messiah that they one day will, as we see spoken of and prophesied about in Romans chapter 11. In the United States of America, I'm going to be so bold as to say we too have fallen and we need to get up. We've come a very, very long way from where we were as a nation. And I know that the revisionist, quote unquote, historians are coming out from the woodwork trying to revise history, which you can change it in the textbooks, but you can't go back and change what actually happened. 
And this is not a plea for a theocracy in the United States of America. We never had a theocracy in the United States of America. And unless there's something apart from Scripture that I'm not aware of, we'll never have a theocracy in the United States of America. The only theocracy that ever was was the nation of Israel, which we don't have now in current day Israel. And the only theocracy that will come is the one that's spoken of in the book of Revelation with the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the throne of David on the earth. And then the theocracy of God, the ruling and the reigning of God on the earth in a new heaven and a new earth that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 21. So this is not an appeal for a theocracy, but it is an appeal for a return to godliness. It is an appeal for genuine spiritual awakening in this nation. It is an appeal for us to go beyond where we've ever been as a nation. It's an appeal for you. It's an appeal for me to be more serious about sincere devotion and surrender to Jesus Christ than we've ever been at any time in our lives. Look with me, because I'm going to read this now for us. Pay attention here about a very, very interesting reality of a very interesting historical truth. On June 1st, 1774, it was a Wednesday, the same day that the British blockade of the Boston Harbor was about to begin. This is before Independence Day. And George Washington's diary entry that day said this, went to church and fasted all day. Seems like he had a dependence upon God. Now, one might say he was also a Freemason. Freemasonry is very bad. If you're a Mason and involved in Freemasonry, you need to renounce that and get out of it. But I don't know, maybe you know something different than me. When I read my Bible, I see God using imperfect people all the time. The only perfect person I see God using is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he was qualified to die on the cross and remove our sins and nobody else. So the next time a, a revisionist, quote unquote, historian or a blogger who sits around in their underwear all day making all kinds of attempts to revise history with their unbiblical agenda, remember you're not telling me anything new by reminding me of the sins of the founding fathers. And by the way, there's not one of us on this earth who's perfect. November 15th, 1862, from his executive mansion in Washington, President Abraham Lincoln quoted General George Washington in his general order respecting the observance of the Sabbath day in the Army and the Navy. Here it is, the president, commander-in-chief of the army and the navy, desires and enjoins the orderly observance of the Sabbath by the officers and men in the military and naval service, the importance for man and beast of the prescribed weekly rest, the sacred rights of Christian soldiers and sailors, a becoming deference to the best sentiment of a Christian people and the due regard for the divine will demand that Sunday labor in the army and the navy be reduced to the measure of strict necessity. My, how far we've come. The discipline and character of the national forces should not suffer, nor the cause they defend be imperiled by their profanation of the day or name of the Most High. At this time of public distress, adopting the words of Washington in 1776, 
quote, men may find enough to do in the service of God and their country without abandoning themselves to the vice and immorality, end quote. Look at that. And then on May 2nd, 1778, General George Washington issued these orders to his troops at Valley Forge. Quote, the commander-in-chief directs that divine service be performed every Sunday at 11 o'clock in each brigade which has a captain. Those brigades which have none will attend the places of worship nearest to them. It is expected that officers of all ranks will by their attendance set an example for their men. While we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to loud the more distinguished character of Christian. The signal instances of providential goodness which we have experienced, which have now almost crowned our labors with complete success, he's speaking about freedom from England and their oppression, demand from us in a peculiar manner the warmest returns of gratitude and piety to the supreme author of all good. Seems to me like Washington didn't quite embrace the modern understanding of separation from church and state. And by the way, for the revision historians out there, the revisionist historians out there, and you might be unwittingly one of them, the phrase separation of church from state appears nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere in the Declaration of Independence, nowhere in the Bill of Rights, and nowhere in any law of the land of the United States of America. It appears nowhere. It's a passing reference made by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to somebody else to encourage and to make sure that the state does not infringe upon the freedom that every religion should have to exercise their beliefs without government interference. That's what that statement historically and factually actually means. And so when we get to 1781 and we read the Congressional Prayer Resolution of 1781, we understand how far we've come as a nation and we ask this question, the tree was green, will the wood be dry? The tree was green, will your wood be dry? Where will you be at the return of Jesus Christ? Here it is, the Congressional Prayer Resolution of 1781. It says that American victory in reference to the Revolutionary War, quote, hath pleased Almighty God, Father of mercies, remarkably, to assist and support the United States of America in their important struggle for liberty against the long-continued efforts of a powerful nation. It is the duty of all ranks to observe and thankfully acknowledge the interpositions of his providence in their behalf. Through the whole of this contest, from its first rise to this time, the influence of divine providence may be clearly perceived in many signal instances. There is no way that a person today can say that we are more abiding, more impassioned about the living and true God today as a nation than we were then. And in the same way that the nation of Israel had drifted from their creator, 
to the point where they rejected their Savior given by their Creator. It is very possible for this country, in fact, we've seen it happen, for a country of tremendous privilege that once was characteristically known to repeatedly and perpetually give honor and thanksgiving to God to fall away and to become dry. I love what the founder of the Salvation Army said, General William Booth, when he said it this way, it's true for you and it's true for me. The tendency of fire is to go out. Therefore, watch the fire on the altar of your heart. The United States of America, just like the nation of Israel, needs a mighty, true, biblical, spiritual awakening. The tree was green. Will your wood be dry? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.